One of the most powerful and profound biblical insights you could ever receive is the revelation of the grace of God and your status as heirs of the grace of life. Grab the shovel of faith and let's start digging up this treasure on this episode of Discover Your Spiritual Identity. It's time to discover your spiritual identity with your host, Mike Shree. There are hundreds of names and titles given to God's people that powerfully reveal who you are, why you exist, and what your purpose is in this world. Each one pulls back the veil of a different aspect of who you are in Christ. Once you learn these names and titles and apply them to your life, you will rise up boldly to be all that God has called you to be. Are you ready? Here's Mike Shree. Welcome to Discover Your Spiritual Identity. Once you find out who God says you are, you can boldly proclaim, I am who God says I am. And it's a way of acquiring your inheritance, seizing what rightfully belongs to you. Remember, God told Abraham, look to the north, south, east, and west, and whatever you see, I will give it to you. So sometimes you have to see exactly who God declares you to be in his word so that you can possess that promised land inheritance. Now, we're going to focus today on this episode on a fantastic title given to the people of God. We are referred to as heirs together of the grace of life in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Heirs together of the grace of life. What a phenomenal name resting upon us. And I need you to see right from the beginning that the word translated life is zoe, Z-O-E, which means divine life, God life, resurrection life. And so if we are heirs of the grace of life, that means the life of God is in us. And that life in us is stronger than the death-dealing effects of this world and of the sin of this world outside of us. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Thank God for that. I want my inheritance. I'm claiming my inheritance today. The grace of God. Now, John chapter 1, verse 17 says that the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, the law is a reference to the Torah, which contains 613 commandments. So primarily, Moses gave religious rules boundaries in which people were supposed to live morally, spiritually, religiously, in order to have a right relationship with God. But it was human beings by the power of human will measuring up to God's expectations. That was good, but there's something much better in the new covenant, and that's grace and truth. And notice those are counterbalancing, because it's not just grace that establishes us. And the Bible did say it's a good thing that the heart is established with grace and not with foods or meats that have not profited those who have been occupied therein. In other words, it's good that your stability spiritually is a connection to grace and not just theological concepts and ideas. It's grace that stabilizes your life. And that's a good thing, but it's balanced out by truth. 
grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so you have to embrace both. If you're going to embrace grace from God, unmerited love, and we'll get to that definition in a little bit, then you've got to embrace the truth with it. And together, they make you a whole person. Now, let's define what grace is. Number one, as I just mentioned, grace is unmerited love, unearned divine favor. That's how it starts. That's how it continues in your life. You don't come to God and receive unmerited love at salvation, and then the rest of your walk with God, you have to earn it. It was unmerited love in the beginning. It's unmerited love all the way through. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says, By grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so the beautiful thing about Christianity is that we receive salvation as a gift from God. All other religions of the world, primary fundamental religions of the world, propose that we have to work our way to some type of liberation or enlightenment or what Christianity would call salvation. It's man's effort to reach God, but Jesus is God's effort to reach man. That's what grace is all about. There is no scripture that demonstrates the fact that grace is unmerited love more than a prophecy of Zechariah, where he talked about the last days where all nations would be gathered against Jerusalem to battle, and right at the height of it, right at the critical moment, and isn't that where God really shines? He comes through when it seems all hope is lost. The scripture says he will pour out on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace. That's a name for the Holy Spirit the spirit of grace and of supplication, and they will look on me whom they pierced. Wow, you talk about a scripture that plainly, boldly declares the nature of grace. It's that one, because they pierced him. They cried, crucify him. They rejected his claim to Messiahship. Certainly not all of them. The early church was all Jewish, but a great number of them did not accept that he was the fulfillment of the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. And yet after 2,000 years of pushing that revelation back, when they're in a crisis moment and it looks like Israel is going to be wiped off the map or destroyed by opposing armies, God's going to pour out grace, unmerited love, and they're going to look on him whom they pierced. And he's going to save them, deliver them, and set them free. If God can do that for a nation that's rejected him for almost two millennia, the majority of the nation, again, let me emphasize, there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Messianic Jews. But the majority of those who embrace Judaism have rejected him. And yet God's heart still beats toward them. And even when you've gone through times in your life where maybe you rejected him or drew back from him or fell short of his expectations, his heart still beat with compassion and love and mercy towards you. That's what grace is. And he pours out on you what he did for Israel 
in the day that he walked on the earth and what he will do in the last days right before he comes again, the spirit of grace and supplication, Zechariah said, because grace empowers you to effectively pray, which is what supplication is. Now, the second definition of grace is divinely imparted ability. Divinely imparted ability. Where do I get that? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10. Paul said, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. So grace can be in vain if we don't act on it, if we don't allow God's grace-filled purpose to seize our lives the way it should. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. Paul said, but I labored abundantly more than they all, and he's referring to the other apostles. Then he said, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. The grace of God that is with me. So he's not even claiming credit for the works of God that flowed through him. He's just yielded to a power that's bigger than him. And really, that's true. We're just yielded to a power and a presence that is much bigger than us. But he said, it gave me the ability I am what I am by the grace of God. It gave me the ability to function as an apostle, to bring forth the miraculous, to flow in the prophetic or whatever he did in organizing the churches under his authority. That's not unmerited love. That's divinely imparted ability. Number three, the grace of God is the abundant generosity of God. God so generous with those that he covenants with in this new covenant era. And then number four, the grace of God is the sum total of all that God is doing in us, all that God is doing for us, all that God is doing through us. It's a very, very comprehensive term. I love the Strong's Concordance definition. That favorite concordance of the church says it this way, that grace is the divine influence on the heart and its evidence in the life. In other words, it starts invisibly affecting you and then visibly manifesting through you. Grace is the divine influence on the heart that's internal and unseen. Grace is the divine influence on the heart and It's evidence in the life that's witnessed by the people around you. So grace always flows through from eternity to time, from heaven to earth, from God into this real world that we're in touch with on a day-to-day basis. Now, I love the acrostic, G-R-A-C-E. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. Jesus paid an awesome price, a terrible price, a heart-rending price, a grievous price in order to gift us with the grace of God. It was a price that I marvel at and that we should all be stunned about, that God would love us that much And there is no scripture that demonstrates this any more than 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, 
Yet for your sakes, he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might be made rich. Now let's camp on that for just a little while. And this really demonstrates one of the definitions I gave a while ago, that number three, grace is the abundant generosity of God. This scripture expresses that abundance more than any other, that you know, in other words, you can comprehend it, you can understand it, you can get a revelation of it. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, how though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. What's that talking about? Certainly, it's not talking about rich as far as the material goods of this world. Sure, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. But what really made him rich was his undisturbed fellowship with the Father, the adoration he was surrounded with in the heavenly sphere, the undisturbed peace that passes understanding that saturates the celestial realm. He was rich in peace and rich in the beauty and the splendor of the paradise world that he is preparing us for. And yet he divested himself of that radiant glory that he had with the Father, where he shines like the sun, so brilliant, so intense, it's indescribable. Because God dwells in a light that no man can approach unto and no man has seen. And yet he divests himself of that brilliant manifestation of glory to come down and assume the poverty-stricken form of Adam flesh as a baby in a Bethlehem manger. But I believe his state of quote-unquote poverty reached a peak when he went to the cross because he was more impoverished then than any other time. In heaven, he was not subject to temptation or satanic attacks. On earth, he was because he came down to experience this impoverished state with us. But when he went to the cross, it got worse because he became sin for us. He absorbed the sin debt of the entire human race from the past, in the present, and on into the future. It all converged on him and soaked into him. He absorbed it, and then he tasted death forever, man, to the point where he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The one thing that enriched him more than anything else was his connection with the Father, and now that's even withdrawn as he becomes the sacrifice for the human race. He became poor for our sakes, that we through his poverty might be made rich. So if we connect with him at his most impoverished moment when he's on the cross, a sin sacrifice, then we who are poverty-stricken mentally, emotionally, spiritually, we have nothing to offer God that could earn us eternal life. We are depraved. We are unclean. We are under the control of the enemy. We are cursed we are carnal-minded. We are caught in this web of deception. And yet, if we connect with him at the cross, we become rich. Rich how? 
The Bible says God pours out on us the riches of his grace. The Bible says he pours out on us the riches of his glory. The Bible says that he pours out on us the riches of his mercy and loving kindness. So he makes us rich in all of these ways. And then the word of God dwells in us richly, the scripture says. And Jesus talked about true riches being spiritual riches, supernatural riches. And we are rich in that way. I don't care if you can't even pay your car payment and you have the most broken down trailer to live in. You're more wealthy than the wealthiest individual in this world that does not know God. And not long ago, I heard an interview with George Soros, who is unquestionably one of the most, if not the most wealthy persons in the world. And yet he said, I don't believe in God. If you struggle to get your payments every week, but you trust and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are rich indeed. James chapter 2 verse 5 says, has not God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? which he's promised to those who love him. What an awesome thing. So when we meet him at his most impoverished moment, we become more enriched than we ever have been in life. And there's a connecting scripture to that in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. It says, To the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he has made us accepted, in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. That's one of the ways God has made us rich, the riches of his grace. He didn't give us a meager amount. He poured out on us absolute abundance, absolute abundance. Praise God. Now listen to that closely, to the praise of the glory of his grace. The work he has done in our lives is all supposed to rebound to his praise, his worship, his adoration, his glory. And really, the most glorious thing God's done in this world is the rescue of fallen souls, of men and women who were estranged from God, and it was impossible for them to be saved within themselves. To the praise of the glory of his grace by which he has made us accepted, in the beloved. Now, I used to preach that that meant, and I still do believe that that means we are just as accepted in the presence of the Father as Jesus, the firstborn son. But I never dug any deeper than the English interpretation of the word accepted. Now, that's wonderful that I am just as welcome in the throne room of the Almighty as the firstborn son. That's miraculous. I could never gain entrance into the presence of God on my own righteousness. So we are accepted in the beloved. That's capital B in your Bibles because Jesus was the beloved son. Remember at his baptism, the father said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So when you are in Christ, you are just as beloved of the father as Jesus, the firstborn. 
And he said that in his prayer in John chapter 17. He said, the glory you've given me, Father, I've given them that the world might know that you've loved them even as you've loved me. That's incredible. But a few years ago, I did a search into the Greek words of that particular passage, and I discovered something absolutely incredible. That the word that is translated accepted is a word that means something much more than just accepted. In fact, that's almost a lame word compared to what the Greek word means. Because it's a word only found twice in the New Testament, karito'o. And the other place is when the angel Gabriel announced to Mary that she was going to have a child and it would be the Son of God. The angel said, Hail thou that art highly favored. And the word translated highly favored is karito'o. And that comes from the root word charis, which is translated grace. And so karito'o means an extreme amount of grace, an exceptional amount of grace. And the Bible says you are accepted. In other words, you have an exceptional amount of grace bestowed on your life that makes you welcome in the very personal presence of the creator of the universe. That's absolutely incredible. And see, Mary was highly favored. And quite often the words in Hebrew and Greek that are translated grace are also translated favor. She was highly favored because the son of God was in her womb for nine months. But he's not just in your heart for nine months. He's in your heart for time and for eternity. So if she was highly favored because of being the mother of the Son of God for a limited period of time, how much more are you highly favored because this is an eternal situation, an eternal relationship with him? Now let's go back to definition number one and number two. Number one, grace is unmerited love. Number two is divinely imparted ability. Those two definitions seem so far apart. How could they ever be pulled together as one? Because unmerited love, divinely imparted ability, that's speaking two separate things altogether. I like to compare it to a man and a woman coming together in marriage. And then the product of that marriage takes place when conception happens and a child is born. And what happens is this, that it begins as an expression of love, this marital union, the husband and the wife coming together. It's an expression of love. It's an expression of deep affection for each other. But then the outcome is an impartation of ability. In that fertilized egg, you'll find the ability for that son or that daughter that will result from that union to be a fully functional human being. That, that that human being has the ability, notice the word ability, to hear as a human being hears, to talk as a human being talks, to see as a human being sees, to walk as a human being walks, to think as a human being thinks, to function as a normal, natural human being. But when God's unmerited love 
was married to divinely imparted ability, uh, then an impartation took place spiritually so that you and I were birthed into the kingdom of God. What starts as an expression of love from God, just rescuing a fallen soul, becomes an impartation of ability where God gives you the ability to see like a son of God, to hear like a son of God, to talk like a son of God, to think like a son of God, to function like a son of God in this world. And that's how those two definitions fit together. Now, is grace free? Well, yes, it is, but, and I've got to stick that conjunction in there. It is free, but you must place yourself in a receptive position to receive it. There are three scriptures that tell us a threefold attitude that we must maintain for grace to keep flowing in our lives. Number one is faith. We've already covered Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. This says, by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So in order to receive grace initially and continually, consistently, you have to maintain faith. You've got to be hard-headed and stubborn-willed when it comes to faith. You've got to be a faith fighter. No matter what you face in life, I believe in the blood of Jesus. I believe in the cross. I believe in his redemption. I believe in the power of his name. I believe in the word of God. And when you are tenacious in faith, then grace can keep flowing. But it is balanced out by another scripture, and that's 1 Peter 5, 5, that says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Because you could get heady with faith, but it has to be married to humility, where you're humbly submissive to the lordship of Jesus, and grace keeps flowing. And then the third prerequisite for grace to begin flowing in your life and to continue is sincere love. That's Ephesians 6.24 that says, Grace be with all those who love the Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. What is sincerity? Being authentic, being real, being transparent, not playing religious games, not showing up at church to fulfill an obligation, but you are passionately in love with the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you've got sincere love, humility, and faith, that is a threefold cord that is not quickly broken. And that will keep you within the boundaries of God's love. Always keep yourselves within the boundaries where God's love can reach you and preserve you. And that leads me to the close of this teaching, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. If those three attitudes are maintained by you, I would dare to say there is an inexhaustible source of grace flowing in your life. Remember, the Bible says we come boldly to the throne of grace. That's the way God terms his throne. But in the book of Revelation, it depicts the throne of God as being the source of a river. The river of life flows out from the throne of God. So if it's a throne of grace, I would dare to say it's a river of grace that flows your direction. God is able, 2 Corinthians 9, 8 says. So it hinges. It's an ability of God that hinges on your attitude. God is able to make all grace abound towards you that you having all sufficiency in all things may abound or may have an abundance for every good work. Abound means more than enough. If you abound in something, 
You have so much you can give it away. It's not just sufficient. It says God is able to make all grace abound towards you that you will always have sufficiency. So in other words, God gives you more than enough to make sure you have just enough. Well, if that be true, when does grace run out? Is there ever a time when it trickles down to nothing? Or is it an inexhaustible source for us? as long as we maintain faith, humility, and sincere love. I would dare to say it is inexhaustible, inexhaustible. And the best way for me to give you an understandable picture of that that you can really connect with is the rock that followed the children of Israel in the wilderness. When Moses struck the rock, and the rock, I believe, represents the word, Striking the rock is connecting with faith to the Word of God. Out of it gushed a river. And listen, it wasn't a little trickle coming down the side of that rock. According to statisticians that have studied that part of the Bible, they say that it took 12 million gallons of water a day to sustain the children of Israel in the wilderness. However, What if they hit a really hot day and everyone was twice as thirsty and it took 24 million gallons? Would there have been enough water in the rock? Absolutely yes. Well, what if they hit a dust storm and all the kids and the cattle and the tents and the uh, possessions and the wagons or whatever had to be scrubbed down and it took 48 million gallons of water? Would there have been enough water in the rock? Absolutely yes. So... The thing I'm trying to get to is this, that no matter how great the need is, the supply exceeds the need. And I would dare to say in your life, you may have hit the bottom mentally, emotionally, even spiritually. You may have fallen flat on your face and you think all hope is gone. But if you have faith, tenaciously hold on to the cross. If you have humility, Humble yourself before the mighty hand of God. Humble yourself before his omniscience and his omnipotence. And if you have sincere love, if you truly love him, you're not just trying to manipulate promises to fit a compromised lifestyle. You really love God. Then grace can reach you. And grace will not only reach you, grace will deliver you, grace will set you free Grace will give you a new beginning. Now, this is just part one of a three-part series, so be sure to get back with me next week for part two and then the following week for part three. This study will change your life forever. Thank you for listening to Discover Your Spiritual Identity with Mike Shreve a podcast designed to cause a spiritual awakening in your life. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss new episodes. You can go deeper into this amazing revelation of the names God has given His people by getting your copy of Mike Shreve's book titled, Who Am I? Dynamic Declarations of Who You Are in Christ. We also invite you to visit our website, shreveministries.org, and sign up to be part of our global internet family, a group of on-fire believers who are bold to proclaim, I am who God says I am, I have what God says I have, and I will be what God says I will be.